0: Cloud applications continue to grow in popularity, but ensuring the security of these applications often presents a formidable engineering challenge. This challenge motivated the creation of JIT. JIT is a continuous security platform for developers and seeks to enable every cloud app to start with minimal viable security or MVS without slowing development velocity. David Melamed is the co-founder and CTO of JIT, and he joins us in this episode to talk about his platform. This episode of Software Engineering Daily is hosted by Jeff Heman.
1: Check the show notes for more information on Jeff's work and where to find him. David Melamed, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you very much, uh, Jeff, for having me. So um, why don't we start by you introducing yourself? Your academic background is uh, quite interesting. And then um, we'll get on to the
0: topic that we want to talk about. Sure. So um, I'm David Melamed, born in France and currently uh, living in Israel, uh, married with four kids. I have a PhD in bioinformatics. Um, I have a very uh, large um, engineering background. I was a uh, backend engineer a few years ago in uh, my heritage. I was uh, CTO for a small startup for a few months, and then I jumped into the cybersecurity world uh, where I uh, joined the city office very quickly, being a full stack uh, engineer at CloudLock. And then uh, after CloudLock was acquired uh, by Cisco, I uh, was in the uh, uh, city office of the um, uh, cloud security business units for four years. And that was before I decided that um, I have in me to be a co-founder and decided with four other uh, people to, co- to co-found JIT, uh, the cybersecurity startup that uh, I'm currently the city of. So you say you went into security and then
1: you say that you've become a full-stack engineer. So I suppose, and that's kind of the topic for today, security is not always something that a full-stack engineer believes that they're responsible for? Did you, from the beginning, think security is absolutely my responsibility? Um, did that depend on the company culture? Was there or wasn't there a dedicated security team? How how would
0: that look in your case? I think it's very interesting because if you're looking into um, developer course and programming course, basically, they, they, most of the time they teach you about how to program, how to write a software without bugs and uh, performing, but very rarely, they're really talking about uh, security. One of the, uh, I I believe, one of the reasons for that is usually the goal of the software developer is to write code and to ship it to production um, without bugs and uh, with performance. And rarely, you're actually measured uh, to the type of security you're writing, whether your code is secure or not. Um, I believe it's a mistake. But currently, this is where the industry is. I think that um, recently, there are more and more awareness around security. And uh, you can see that security has been now uh, a really a central topic for a lot of companies uh, with uh, breaches all the time. And um, I think that uh, all the world about you know, shift left and also about uh, the training for security for developers is is getting traction so i believe that things are changing slowly but surely
1: yeah i can see a definite parallel here between the devops movement um and the same thing happening with security so devops obviously um well it's, it's obvious to me because uh, I've, uh, <laughs> I've worked in the field but for those who don't know devops uh, the origin of the movement was basically two teams working Against each other effectively. So, like you said, developers um, being rewarded on uh, churning out new features and and making stuff work. And then you had operations which were um, rewarded if the, the the service was up, if you have good uptime, if you had stable um, deployments and so on. And so their incentives kind of worked against each other. And we're stepping into a direction now with the DevOps movement and with uh, more and more. Um, stuff being offered as, let's say, uh, IaaS or or PaaS that developers see themselves gradually becoming responsible for uh, the infrastructure as well. Um, And then there is kind of, I I believe, still behind DevOps, you have DevSecOps, where we're finally realizing that uh, security also needs to be in that equation, right?
0: Yeah, I I would say that um, engineers in general, uh, like there is this sentiment that they really don't like uh, security. And um, I think that's probably because um, there is kind of a lack of knowledge. They're not really specialists. As I said, they're not really learning about it. Um, The tools most of the time are not really adequate. And so it actually adds them more work. And uh, it kind of distracting them from their primary goal, which is basically to, to ship the code to production. And uh, a lot of, of tools are not uh, friendly enough so, peop- so that uh, people can really use them, uh, you know, while they're doing their work. Um, and I would say that if uh, security issues was co- were considered like a software bug, then uh, developers would be able to treat that uh, really more easily. Um and beside that, like you, you talked about the uh uh the devops uh, movement and, and the fact that developers are responsible for more and more uh stuff, I think there's a really interesting uh trend here um there is a there is a say that uh, software is eating the world, and that basically uh there's a trend ongoing trend that is mainly driven by velocity um where um there are more and more um focus on how to ship code faster. For example, the fact that you have uh, CICD uh, put in place, a lot of automation, infrastructure as code, a lot of things are actually done in order to improve velocity of the time. And so everything that is slowing down velocity is, uh, needs to change in order to overcome the challenges. So if there is a friction between uh, engineering and another part of the, of the uh, organization, Um, at the end, it needs to change in order to be able to uh, facilitate the deployment of code faster. And so you can see that the trends uh, are really interesting over the last uh, couple of years, a decade basically. In modern companies, QA, which was uh, previously uh, a different team outside of engineering, um, where usually you had a lot of friction between QA and engineers because Sometimes developers were just writing code, expecting QA to, to test it. Uh, for If you want to be more efficient here, basically QA uh, was uh, uh, turned into an internal function of the team. And the developers are now also responsible of testing the code and doing that in their way, meaning in a codified way, using unit test, uh, integration test, and end-to-end test. The same thing happened afterwards uh, with IT and the ops world, where basically you had before some friction, you, you had a dependency between engineers and the IT department when you needed a machine to run your code on. It changed now because we have automation. And so you have the whole world of uh, DevOps that, uh, that was born, where basically everything is also codified and automated. And now with infrastructure as code and all the cloud providers, you can uh, spin up uh, your instances on demand and engineers and and DevOps that are now working together in the same team um, are really more efficient. Now, if you're looking at uh, the way uh, performing teams are working today, uh, shipping codes to production, there is still some anomaly because they're responsible for building the service, they're responsible for testing the service, for deploying the service, for supporting the service after it's in production, but basically they're not support. They're not owning the security part of it, because security is still mostly uh, run by an external team that is not part of engineering. And so this team is deciding on the policies, they're deciding on which tool uh, the developers needs to need to use, and they also need to uh, to fix stuff. And that's that's a. Uh, that's a really, that, that's breaking them, uh, that's breaking the, the slowing down, the velocity, because basically um, the, the, in the, uh, the security team needs to catch up all the time with what developers are doing, developers and DevOps are doing. And so, and so that, that's the main concern right now. And so in really progressive uh, organization, they're thinking that it needs to change and the way QA was actually uh, moved into uh, the engineering team and uh, Ops actually turned to DevOps, uh, they also believe that uh, security needs to be part of it. And so DevSecOps, which is kind of uh, uh, the combination of the, uh, the premise of it, is, is the, uh, the beginning of a movement where basically engineering are also owning security. So if I were to be defensive and kind of argue
1: why the status quo is the way it is i would say that it's more trivial for developers to incorporate testing because you can positively test for the outcome you want than it is for them to incorporate uh, security because that's kind of a a, a non-exhaustive attack surface i suppose so if we think about something like test-driven development which is one of the ways where developers um, very much shift left on QA and integrate the QA function into developer team. Uh, as a developer I would start writing tests saying the, the, the logic that I'm about to write in this case it needs to do this and in this case it needs to do this. So they're all quite affirmative um, assertions. But with security you kind of have to think about all the possible edge cases and all the things that don't even fit into um, into the model, and it's much more difficult to uh, incorporate that or to, I suppose, teach a developer, uh, especially you know an average developer, um, about all of that. So, how do you think? What would be the best way to approach this? Um, I, I suppose is it lack of knowledge or well, first
0: of all, what you're saying is true, but I could counter-argue that uh, things are not as easy as it seems because, yes, uh, it's true that uh, writing tests are very deterministic, but unfortunately, it doesn't mean that developers don't miss use cases, and that's why you have bugs in production. Um, on the other way, uh, and also they're, they're writing their own tests. On the other way, if you're looking at security, uh, we're not asking uh, developers to write tools, like they're using existing tools. And those tools are using uh, known patterns for code that is vulnerable. Vulnerable to attacks, vulnerable to exploits. Uh, for example, if you're looking at the uh, OWASP Top 10 list, which is a great list uh, that is updated every year or so, uh, there is a, a very well known list of things that you need to, uh, uh, to ensure when you're writing code. There you have also courses, how to write secure code. So it it's may not be deterministic because there can still be some new exploits because you're adding uh, like code all the time, there's new vector attacks. That's true. But I think that it, it's, it shouldn't be as hard as it seems because you have people that are writing, that are experienced security, that are writing the tools. The only, I think that the issue is not, not so much with the technology, but it's more of the experience. So first of all, um, tools needs to be dev friendly, meaning that right now one of the main issues is that tools like SAS or uh, or even CA, like mostly SaaS, like they're 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 too noisy, and the reason for that is that because they're doing their job, but they don't have the context, so they're looking at every piece of code the same, which uh, in 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 theory it is, but in practice it's definitely not, and that's also the difference between you know. Uh, uh, security done by security people versus security done by engineers. Um, if you're looking at uh, security people, they would say, okay, we need to find all the issues and fix them. If you're looking at engineers, their goal should be to deploy their code to production and only fix what's necessary to reduce the risk as uh, uh, to a minimum. And so everything else is not interesting. So for example, a lot of uh, uh, products in the cybersecurity world are showing you millions of vulnerabilities, like high severity, medium severity, low severity. For engineers, that's not interesting, because they will never get to the low severity ones. Like there, there's so many things to, to, to fix. What they need to know is basically what really matters. What do you need to fix if you had only two hours in order to reduce the risk to a minimum? And maybe uh, SAS is not the best way to do it, because maybe most of the, of the code is actually not exploitable. And so I think that that's the, uh, at the end, it's, it's more a matter of, uh, of how to make the security more efficient uh, than, uh, you know, a technology problem. There is also a lack of knowledge for sure, but I would say that the tools out there just need to be uh, used properly with a good experience so that uh, it won't draw too much attention and, and uh, overhead for developers to use them. So what you're saying is
1: uh, that we can probably apply the, is it the Pareto principle and um, tackle 80% of issues with just 20%
0: of effort already. Exactly. And, and I think more than that, uh, there is this notion like, if you now need to uh, introduce security in a company, what you should do, um, whether, if you have two choices, like if you're looking at the, the way uh, security teams are handling security, they want maximum security. They want to do everything. But I believe that uh, if you're looking at the engineering world, they would look at it very differently. They would look at it using Agile methods because it worked very well for them. So for that, uh, I actually like very much the idea and the approach of minimum viable security, meaning what is the minimum that you need to do in order to release your software? Start with that. And so don't try to boil the ocean. Um, Don't say that you should, stay there and end there, but I think that that's a good start. Start with, you know, the basic stuff. Like if you had to, to uh, rank the different risks, where, you sh- where should you start? For example, things that are externally accessible are probably the most uh, easily exploitable or can be, can be used by, very easily by, by uh, malicious actors. Uh, but if you had, um, if you compare the, the different tools in the industry, I don't think that everything is equal. When you have uh, a high severity vulnerability in a SaaS tool, and let's say a high severity in the cloud misconfiguration tool, that's not the same. Like one is very easily uh, exploitable, the other, the other may be really harder to use. Um, and so wh- one approach would be the minimum viable security. There's another uh, approach, which is also very interesting. It's called the maximum viable security. What's the maximum viable security? Well, it's basically making sure that you add security to a point that you're actually not hurting developer velocity. Because at the end, you have uh, this balance between adding security to ensure that you reduce your risk, but also, on the other hand, you want to to ship your your code out. If you're spending most of your time fixing vulnerabilities and you're not shipping your code, at the end, your startup will be dead, and and you don't care about security, you know. At the end,
1: this is a, this is a very interesting discussion. Uh, certainly, the first kind of question that is screaming around in my head is, when do you know you're done? So I th- I think the the vantage point that you're coming from is that um, we already have a lot of tools that can inform us on existing vulnerabilities, and they will rank them. Uh, by severity and we can also have a look and assess them by exploitability and by the the data that they possibly expose um, and so on. So do you think that there is also a place within the developers team um, to do their own sort of exploratory penetration testing or is that too far and, and, and that is actually something that should be relegated to an external team?
0: I think that ideally, I would like to use something like you know uh, pen test as a service, so that it would be part of the arsenal of the tools that you have at your disposal to test your uh, uh, your application. And I would say even more than that, um, the way currently pen test is done is basically once in a while you're doing pen test uh, against uh, production and you're ensuring that you're not exploitable. The the way uh, you can do it uh, better. Um, is not to do point in time pen test. Is to do continuing continuous pen test. Um, and the way you do that is basically based on code changes. Every time you change your code, you would like to know if you're in, there's a new exploitable uh, path into production. And so what I would do is basically run some DAST uh, tail uh, tool whenever I'm deploying a new version to staging in order to see if there's something that I did. Uh, that is now exploitable, and basically, being able to um, to cover it back, that's to some code changes. I think that that's the way engineers are actually thinking. They're thinking CI/CD. They are thinking, uh, you know, uh, continuous all the time. This is this is their world, um, and I think we should adapt security to this new world and talk about, you know, CI/CD and CS, continuous security. That that's the that's the new term which everyone should use. So, how would you define? Uh, well, you've already defined minimum
1: viable security, but how? Just in two sentences, do I know that my product has achieved minimum viable security, and I can release it?
0: So, I think it's an interesting question because uh, there's no real standard uh, that defines that. You know, there are a lot of frameworks today for security, um, whether they're compliance driven or there are standards like like NIST uh, that try to define sub, some kind of standard. I don't think there's a, there's a standard for minimum uh, viable security. Uh, there is an initiative by uh, Google and Salesforce called the MVSP, which is the minimum, minimum viable security product that is interesting, and they also try to define that, but it's kind of a little bit subjective. Uh, everyone can have this, this kind of its own uh, minimum viable set of of things you would like to see. I think there's a really bare minimum that you would like uh, to see and, and if you're uh, you know looking at the different uh, component of, of security when you have the appsec, the, the CloudSec, Infrasec, pipeline sec, like there's probably a little bit of minimum in each of these area uh, that you want to cover. Great. And
1: would it be correct to say that minimum viable security applies? to my product but maximum viable security doesn't apply to the product as much as to the developer experience because minimum viable security is about getting a product to the customer that is secure but maximum viable security is about not impeding my internal development process.
0: Yeah, I would say there is a continuum between the minimum viable security which is uh, measured in in the number of tools, the number of things that you want to, to attach. Uh, and to embed in your process, the maximum variable security basically says that um, when you're iterating to add more security, at some point it can it uh your developers and your developer experience, and so you need to stop because otherwise uh, you will actually slow down the whole the whole machine. And the whole ma- the machine is very well oiled in order to deploy continuously every day. And if you add too many things, and for example, I don't know in terms of tools, you're using too many tools or tools that are too slow, you're slowing the whole machine down. And so at some point, even if you're, you think you will, uh, you're doing good because you add more and more security, at some point, it's really hurting you and your business, which is the ultimate goal of any company, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think now would be a good
1: time to uh, take a minute and, and talk about JIT to give uh, our listeners some context. What is it, What is the problem that
0: JIT tries to solve specifically and how does it try to solve it? Awesome, thanks. That's a great question. So um, at JIT, um, as I said before, and and, and that's actually a great segue, uh, we believe that the only viable solution to build a secure cloud application is by transferring the ownership of security to the engineering organization. And uh, to achieve this goal, we have built a DevSecOps orchestration platform which packages the best open source tools, uh, cloud-native tools, and and commercial tools across your whole tech stack, whether it's uh, AppSec, uh, CI/CD pipeline, cloud infrastructure, and a runtime. And uh, we built a platform that is uh, self-service, and we're really targeting uh, the engineering organization, so developers and DevOps, uh, and that's why we actually built a great developer experience. Uh, we're focusing there, Uh, We really don't want to hurt uh, Velocity. That's our main mission. Uh, Add security, but not at the expense of Velocity. And uh, onboarding on the platform takes really a a few minutes. Um, So you're all welcome to try it out. Um, It's JIT.io. Really, really simple and be happy to get some feedback. A question I always
1: like to ask is, if I now get started with JIT, what does it look like? to me? Is it an ID I have to download? Is it just a bunch of processes I have to follow? What, From a developer's point of view, what does it actually
0: look like? Awesome. So first of all, we're a true believer of, of shift left and, and very shift left and even more shift left. And so that's why we also built uh, an ID plugin. Um, but we also have a platform. The platform uh, provides two types of experience. There's, a, there's an experience for the DevSecOps. Uh, so the, the the main persona that is managing the whole the whole program, who actually can pick um, a security plan. So, a security plan uh, is uh, basically a list of security requirements that has some defined business outcome, whether it's compliance or improving your security posture, or or uh, we have a, a lot of built-in plans. Um, and so, you ha- you're picking a plans, and so you we're mapping behind the scenes a lot of tools that are integrating in your CIC environment and uh, in, in your cloud and your runtime. From the developer point of view, basically, you're just uh, working uh, as as usual in your own environment, whether it's in Slack or uh, in GitHub. You're opening a PR and suddenly you see JIT adds a few checks of security and uh, behaving like your security body, your, your peer, doing a code review. And so we're adding comments in the PR with security uh, vulnerabilities. And so you're getting them really all the information just in time, hence the word JIT, uh, in order for you to fix it and really treat all those vulnerabilities like, uh, security, like, like a bugs, a software bugs. And we're also providing some remediation. So you have code uh, suggestion in order to fix it on the spot. Um, and we're also splitting between uh, issues that are related to new code that you're writing versus existing code, because that's also one of the uh, main thing and the main challenges we have in most security products. When you install them, usually you don't install that on a new, new product, and so you have all the existing code, all legacy code with millions of issues. And so we don't want to overwhelm the developer, and so we're splitting between uh, new code and an existing code. Uh, you still can see everything of the backlog in the product in the main platform, but we're not showing that to developers. So that's the other view of
1: the platform you said one of the views was the DevSecOps, Devsecops, which then yes focuses more on
0: Well you can review everything you know the vulnerability management uh, piece the Devsecops KPIs to see if you're really improving if your teams are improving um, and and you have the developer view which is really very uh, first uh, uh, dev first and, and uh, native to the to their environment so it sounds like it's really aiming to help add business
1: value and, and not be an impediment to the development process.
0: Exactly. Which is basically what security should be. <laughs> Optimally, yes. Um, you've talked about
1: shift left and shifting even more left. And so at some point, um, we come to this uh, phrasing of born left. Um, where does this come from and what does it mean?
0: Yeah, so um, shift left is a trend that uh, I've been following for uh, for a few uh, some time now. The problem with shift left is that it's not really solving a problem. Shift left basically means that uh, people got to the understanding that if they're fixing issues before production, it takes more time. It's it's uh, um, less expensive. Born left means something else. Born left means that basically security is not an external, it's not externally to uh, the SDLC and to the engineering team. It's basically part of the DNA of how you build a product. It's embedded in your SDLC. And so when you're born left, you're not really dependent on an external team to do your job because you're owning it. It doesn't mean that you don't work with security people, but security people are actually in your organization and help you doing your job. Uh, So if you have any question, you can still rely on them, but you're not depending on them because everything is built into the process. That's what Born's Left meant. So what is, if we have a lot of
1: responsibility or almost all of the responsibility for security uh, also being owned by the engineers, what is in that view Um, the actual responsibility of the dedicated security team.
0: I think at the end, the security team needs to be able to define the policies in the company, uh, what is important, what are the areas that they should focus on, uh, what is the definition of the minimum viable security and and how to go next afterward. Uh, They should be able to review also what developers are doing, because developer can, for example, ignore some vulnerabilities because they believe uh, it's not relevant, and and uh, definitely security people experts can after that uh, look at the the results of what was ignored and decide whether or not uh, it should be reviewed or fixed. Um, so there's still a very um, central position of the security persons in the in the organization. It's just like they're they're uh, here to support uh, the engineers and not really. Um, you know, uh slow them down or uh trying to catch up with what we're doing, like they need to be able to define some uh, some goals for the organization in terms of what type of maturity they want to get to and uh what are the business goals in terms of security for example, if there's some compliance process they need to uh they need to uh, support, and at the end, they need to support the whole process and make sure that uh everything works fine. Because engineers, at the end, as I said, uh, they're not uh, really the ones that are uh, uh, focused on security. They need to treat security as as just something else they need to do as part of their code, but that's not their main main concern. And when it comes to things such as
1: security as code or policy as code, all of that domain, um, firstly, do you have any general thoughts on that? Any... Cause it's, it's quite a, a new domain. That's just starting to emerge in, in, the last couple of years. I think any good implementations you've come across any implementations with issues that you've come across.
0: So first of all, I didn't touch that, but as I said previously, everything that, uh, at the end landed in the engineering world has been codified. So of course security can only work if it's as code, because that's how engineers are actually working and behaving. Uh, it's also very efficient uh, because it can be automated. And everything that cannot be automated usually uh, is not working well with developers. Um, now, in terms of uh, good implementations, I think that uh, there is a lot of uh, um, uh, initiatives. And I think that, for example, policy as code, now we have the great tool uh, OPA, uh, Open Policy Agent, um, in the open source world, in Kubernetes world, that is getting a lot of attention. Uh, a lot of people think that it may be uh, this kind of main uh, and central way to uh, to evaluate policies. Um, it's based on on Rego, uh, which is an interesting language. Um, I think that uh, ultimately this is, this is how uh, security should be done. Uh, everything should be should be as code. This is also how we build JIT. Uh, basically, all our security plans are built as code all the policies and the evaluation and how we map that to the different tools is also build as code because, um, on one hand, um, we believe that it's the only way, it's the only viable way to do it. And on the other hand, we also understand something very unique, maybe to security is that, um, when you're building a platform for security, you're building that for 80% of the common risk between all the different products. But at the end, every product has its own custom risks. And so how you deal with that? The only way to deal with that is basically enable extending the framework or the, the platform in order to for, for, uh, for people to be able to define their own custom risk and implement that using their own custom tool. And so this is what we're currently doing also at JIT is providing that uh, to to all the companies so that they will be able to cover the whole stack plus their custom risks. So the plans
1: that uh, I can select in JIT, they can be customized, and I expect that there will be a few presets also from uh, JIT. Is one of those presets effectively the minimum viable security? So if I I don't have a great security education already, but I want to uh, use JIT hypothetically, from day one for my new startup idea. Uh, can I just select, I want to do my MVP with MVSP and just go and have a good degree of certitude that I'm not exposing my potential customers to huge unnecessary risks?
0: Yeah, I sure didn't try JIT yet because this is exactly what we're doing. Uh, so this is how we build it and, and we have the, great, uh, the, the, the same mindset. Uh, we built it also... F- That's just how intuitive it is. Exactly, exactly. So, yes, uh, definitely. If you don't know what to do and this is what to try here to, to help with, I uh, don't have the, the, the expertise or the knowledge. Uh, that basically just click on member Security and, and voila, you have all these tools that are running in the environment within minutes. That sounds
1: very, very intuitive and, and just the way it should be. There's no point getting out a, a very sophisticated, very performing uh, solution that nobody will use because it takes months to, to onboard already. Um, I'd like to ask you a few definitions, because I always think if I haven't heard of something, there's a good chance that our listeners might not have heard of it either. Uh, what is the uh, OPA, the Open Policy Agent? What does it do?
0: So Open Policy Agent is an engine uh, that evaluates policy that are written in Rego in order to basically allow access or deny access, and it was built for the Kubernetes world. So. If you're thinking about a microservice that, for example, uh, needs to deal with, uh, I don't know, salaries, and you want to see uh, if the, some user can access it, basically you can use OPA in order to evaluate uh, whether or not, based on, let's say, some external data, like uh, you know, the role of the user that's trying to get to, uh, uh, to the service, whether or not the request should be uh, granted or uh, denied. So that's that's the premise of how a PA is working. And um, they extended that to a lot of uh, different use cases, but that's that's the premise, that's the gist of it. And they extended it to work beyond Kubernetes now as well. Yeah, you can use it uh, regardless to Kubernetes because it, it works basically with uh, JSON inputs and uh, based on data that is also JSON and returns just true or false. So very simple. Um, the language they use is not always uh, super friendly or, or uh, human-readable uh, in easy way. Uh, Rego, it's based on Datalog, but once you understand how it works, uh, it's very powerful. Uh, there are also alternatives to this language, by the way. There is a recent uh, initiative by uh, AWS uh, that uh, just released uh, this uh, Cedar language. Uh, it's a little bit more focused on uh, permissions in AWS, but it's it's way more uh, readable and it's uh, really uh, uh, interesting uh, language uh, because they also managed to prove uh, that it's uh, working 100% of the time. Uh, So it's secretly proven basically. Uh, So it's
1: really interesting. So challenging the Pareto principle there and trying to be more thorough. How do you spell uh, the AWS solution?
0: Cedar, uh, C. E-D-D-A-R. Uh, like the tree. Like the tree. Yeah, exactly. That's the tree. <laughs> and then you taught
1: me a new uh, saying today, which I'm very surprised after Googling. I hadn't heard yet, but same logic applies here. Software is eating the world.
0: Yes. Uh, it's actually uh, uh, was published uh, originally in the Wall Street Journal by uh, Andrew Sean, I think. Um, this is something about, uh, software at Shua music and publishing. It's eating away at Madison Avenue. And basically it says that, um, developers are, are, uh, having more and more, um, ownership, um, and software is now everywhere. Everything is codified, basically. Um, if you're, if you're looking at it, everything tries to be automated. And so basically they're the king of the worlds. Yeah. And I think
1: the responsibility that. Software developers take on goes more and more into the physical world. Um, one simple, silly example is um, you hear stories about like locks that can be controlled via Bluetooth or via Wi Fi. And then, obviously, by now, humanity has an understanding of like the physical reliability of a lock and, and making sure that it's proof, uh, I suppose, hammer proof and, and, and whatnot. Um, but from a software point of view, often. I think you'll agree uh in in less mature organizations the only consideration will be that it works and there will be almost no security consideration so it'll possibly be enough to intercept um some http traffic and 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 you have the lock open um which is relatively innocuous but what scares me personally much more is the digitalization of things like cars um because those are literally uh, mass accessible weapons and, uh, just thinking about the consequences of bad people, uh, exploiting vulnerabilities in those, um, is yeah, something that could keep me up at night.
0: Yeah. I can totally relate to that. I think that, uh, more generally the IOT world is, is kind of concerning because there are so many IoT devices that are, uh, you know, built very cheap. Um, and like uh mass broadcast, the problem is that usually those uh th- those manufacturers don't care really about security, and so it's really easy to exploit them and because they're because they are so massively distributed, you can think of the damage it can it can do um so in in terms of of course, there are already a lot of exploits that prove that um we, we we still need to concern about it. To be, to be concerned about it, um, I I still uh, believe that uh, we we need to uh, to improve in that area, and uh, security should be one of the one of the if not the most uh, top concern uh, for car manufacturers uh, in that in that sense.
1: So let's try and wind up um, this episode with a, a discussion that's veering a bit more into the philosophical. How do we? Tackle this problem, I see two possible approaches. One is more education for software developers, making security considerations almost a, a mandatory uh, part of it, but you can you can enforce that at universities, sure, but if you have anyone who is autodidactic, um, you can't enforce that. They learn uh, about security considerations, and then the the other. A uh, vector by by which you could change this is uh, shifting the responsibility onto uh, onto companies that launch products and making them responsible for the consequences of various uh, security breaches and, and and other consequences of vulnerabilities. Um, wouldn't that negatively affect the ability of like I say, new startups to launch because they'd have to dedicate too much time to uh, engineering the security.
0: Um, I I don't think so. And and I'll explain why I I think that, um, at the end, if I has to, uh, uh, to summarize, um, what we need to do is basically start with creating some security culture in any company, uh, whether it's a startup that just, uh, was born yesterday or it's a big company. Usually in big companies you already have that because at some point they need to do it and if they don't do it, uh, they won't be able to sell because customers will ask for it. But there is this false sense of, um, of uh, we don't need security when you're a startup uh, because like what can happen to us? We don't have a reputation, uh, we're about to die if we're not uh, shipping our software. The problem usually is that the, the day after then uh, you realize that, uh, well, now you need to do something, and usually you have a lot of uh, technical debt in order to, to do something. Um, I don't think it should take uh, a lot of time, especially if you have products that are built to help you with that. Um, and that's why I really believe in this MyMF Viable Security, because the goal of it is basically uh, to get to some baseline that without it, you would be actually ashamed to uh, deploy your, your product to production. Um, and so the, the, the idea here is only to take care of the minimum and not try to put everything uh, from day one, because I agree that that would kill your business. Uh, but there's still some minimum that otherwise would be negligence. You know, it, should, like it's, it will be uh, really um, uh, a shame to, uh, to deploy that without it. So optimally security
1: would be a, a, a day zero consideration which it can be relatively frictionlessly with JIT but even if a company focuses on just getting the functionality out and makes security a, a day two consideration um, JIT will make it relatively non-overwhelming to make sure that going forward you're secure and then you can tackle the backlog at your own pace if I understood that right.
0: Yeah exactly try to think that you have a, a hole in your uh, in your boat and so the way you want to deal with it is not by trying to to uh, remove the water from the boat you want to be able to clog your uh, your hole before you actually do something with with this and so same thing with security first try to uh, st- stop the bleeding and ensure that you can deal with all the new code to not uh, add to your uh, technical debt and then you can uh, deal with all your backlogs. David, thank you so much
1: for coming on the show. It was really interesting talking to you. Remind, remind us again where can people
0: find out more about JIT? JIT.io. Very simple. JIT.io. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.